You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my always lovely other half, Dr. Jess, who's currently squeezing my nipple. Just wanted to see if he could keep going, and he did. I did, and I threw you a curveball by telling everybody that that's what you were doing at the beginning. <laughs> ah, how you doing today, babe? I'm great. My nipple's a little sore, but otherwise, I'm great. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm good. I feel like your nipples have played a prominent role in the podcast the last few weeks because you were talking about, uh, I don't know, pinching nipples on my Instagram, and people were having a good time with that. I think my family unfollowed us, but we're we're okay with that, and... I don't know. I feel like things are are going really well right now because life is getting back to normal here in Canada. They're opening up some restrictions or they're I guess they're loosening the restrictions around travel. Uh, We are fully vaccinated, you and me. I got a pinch in my vaccination. The pharmacist pinched my arm and said, no, she said, I like to pinch. Then she pinched my arm and then she gave me the jab. And I'm unclear as to whether or not she liked to pinch for, I don't know, the sake of the vaccine or she just generally liked to pinch and took the took the opportunity to pinch me but either way i'm happy because i'm vaxxed got my jabs and it feels so good anyhow <laughs> uh, lots going on just wanted to mention that my my new show on city tv presented by tsc is still running friday nights here in canada at midnight on city and it's called intimately you with dr jess and we're already I don't know, almost two-thirds through the season. We're at least halfway through season one, and it's going pretty cool. I think it's so much fun to get to hawk sex toys on national TV, and I've got, honestly, we're having the coolest guest. Tonight we're joined by Shanae Adams, who is going to be giving us a lesson in queer language and pride history. Uh, Next week we're joined by Dr. Jessica Shepard, who's talking to us about orgasm and bodily function. Luna Matadas is on there all the time with me. Last week we were talking anal play. I can't believe how much they let us talk about butt play on regular network television. So I don't know. The world, it is a changing. Uh, So definitely check that out. Please do tune in Friday night, City TV, or check it out at tsc.ca slash intimately you. I like that Luna Matadas called it the Crotch Cafe. I know they let her run with Crotch Cafe on on the oral sex episode. And I I don't know. I don't know what the CRTC, that's like our governing body that I guess people put complaints into, but we're doing all right. I don't know. I haven't heard anything. So also before we we dive into today's topic, want to shout out our sponsor, adamandeve.com. They are offering a wicked deal, 50% off almost any single item, plus free shipping and a whole bunch of free goodies with code Dr. Jess, again, at Adam and eve.com and as usual the discount code is d-r-j-e-s-s so go get a shopping now today we are talking polyamory we're gonna chat about the asian american catholic experience we're going to be talking about coming out and much much more with our guest sydney Sydney rachen is a queer intuitive sex guide and much more she joins us now thanks so much for being here Thank you so much for inviting me, especially like, I know this has taken a long time to like put together. So I'm excited to be here. Overdue, overdue. And I'm glad we're doing it. Now, you describe yourself as both a survivor and a closeted queer woman who grew up Chinese Catholic. 
I grew up Chinese Jamaican Catholic, which is a slightly different thing, but you talk about feeling soaked in shame for so many years. So I'd love to talk to you about your process for overcoming shame and what that has looked like. For me, it's taken many years and a lot of therapy (laughs) um, to overcome shame around my queerness. And it's still something that I'm like trying to undo for myself because there's just so much, especially grown up Chinese Catholic, like there's so much heteronormativity in the church. There's so much anti-queerphobia and homophobia in the church that like I internalize for so many years as a bisexual or queer bisexual Chinese American woman. And I think it's taken a lot of being in the right places at the right time. So like when I got to college, I met a bunch of other queer women of color in this arts collective that I was a part of. And then I started to realize, oh, this could be me. Like I see these people like living their best lives as their like whole selves. It just kind of like made me realize that like, oh, this is making me unhappy living in this shame. I was like 18, 19 at that time because it was like sophomore year or end of freshman year. And it was my best friend who I'm still best friends with to this day. She was the one who made me realize that I was queer or that I'm a queer person slash bisexual person because she was like, yeah, you know, straight people don't try to kiss their best friends. And I was like, oh, oh, I see what you mean. And I think having her deep friendship that I still have made me realize that this wasn't something that I'm supposed to be ashamed of. Also, in the past, I've mostly dated men and and made me realize, oh, my bisexuality is still valid, even though I'm dating mostly men or I've dated mostly men. Now, that's an interesting conversation because... There is so much bi erasure within the queer community. There is so much focus on defining a person by a given moment in time or defining your identity by averages, right? If I've dated eight men and two cis women, what does that mean, right? Can I really say I'm bi? I look back to when I was young. I never used the word bi because it just didn't sit with me. And then new language kind of came about and pan, and queer is a word I've always used, but pansexual kind of better described how I identify, but that pressure to, I think, prove that you're bi or prove that you're not straight when you maybe don't have experience with both genders or all genders can can be a lot to take on in addition to overcoming shame Yeah, more generally. So when you talk about your, your upbringing, how much of a role did that play, you know, being Chinese Catholic in loading the shame on you or... Did you face challenges around coming out with your family? So like we were the type of family to like go to church every week. And like I went to Sunday school. Like I grew up going to Sunday school from like, when was it? It's age five or age six, like what, kindergarten to like 13, 14. And my parents really wanted me to join the youth group. But like I had reservations around that because at the time I considered myself an ally. to the queer and LGBTQ plus community. I just didn't like how much homophobia was in the church. And I was like, "Eh, I'm not going to go to church. Like, this is not for me without even realizing that I was bisexual at the time or like that I identified as that at the time. I just knew that, oh, the church is like, this is not okay. How are you going to say you love all people and then be homophobic or like be queerphobic (laughs) and coming out to my family? I feel like it's still like an everyday process. So I live with them right now. And to get my parents to understand bisexuality, it's been like, it's still a journey. And I think that they're always going to be, have to learn something because 
I think that's something that's been indoctrinated in society and also just like from the Chinese Catholic Church that they like go to and they're like definitely devout Chinese Catholics. I think it's hard for some people, especially who grew up in that environment, to see me as bisexual or queer because of, again, date and history. My first love was a man. So he was the person that I brought home like three years ago. So there was that assumption that I'm straight because I'm dating a man, despite my ex slash first love also being bi and also being Asian. But it was a race in that relationship because it was seen as a straight relationship by our families. Right. Now you talk about coming out every day. And for me, that sounds really exhausting. What does that entail in, you know, you're living with your family. What does that entail coming out every day? And how do you feel about that? How are you managing? For me, it's just like giving them a little like tidbits of information that I have like capacity for in terms of like having them understand bisexuality. And I know that they might not ever get it. And that's just something that I have to accept because maybe that's something that I have to give myself. Therapists have said that they might never get this and you might have to give it to yourself. I think it's also having chosen family with other like queer people of color and like queer friends of color that I met in college. Those have always been the people that have been affirming my queerness and my bisexuality, even when my parents don't completely get it. Like they get that I'm bisexual, but they don't necessarily understand how I see bisexuality and how that correlates or doesn't correlate to dating. Because for me, it doesn't necessarily correlate to dating history all the time. And in and of itself can be exhausting to have to educate when you're just looking for support from folks that you love or who love you. And that's why chosen family becomes so important, right? This extended family, it doesn't have to just be bloodlines. Now, on top of coming out as queer, you've also, you're all polyamorous. So that's why we're here. We want to talk about a little bit about polyamory. And we talk about coming out as a process around sexual orientation, but not necessarily around relationship related identities. So what was your journey to discovering that you're polyamorous? I was in a lot of mono or the relationships that I've been in have been monogamous minded. The one that I was in three years ago was definitely monogamous minded. And so was the one that I was in like a week ago. (laughs) I guess for me, I just thought that or I indoctrinated myself again. This relates to grown up Chinese Catholic that you're supposed to be with one person for the rest of your life. So I always thought that was what I was supposed to do. And I guess in college, I thought there was... I guess in the back of my head, subconsciously, I've thought that there's something wrong with me that I want to be with more than one person. Because I've had this realization in the last week or two or three that like, I can't just give my love to one person. Like it makes me happier when I'm able to share love with multiple people. I think that it's taken me a long time. So it took me like my first big breakup with my first love to realize, oh, I'm polyamorous. Because we tried to be friends for a year. And then we were in this weird quasi relationship for a year, but we didn't call it a relationship. We said we were friends, but I'm like, you don't say, I mean, yes, you can say I love you to a friend every day, but like there's context behind that. And also like he was giving me like pet names and I'm like, you don't do that with someone who's just your friend. And then we had this big fight 
it was I think it was like last year or like mid last year or something we had a big fight around like oh I want to get back together like let's try to make this work and then he's like no you're polyamorous and I'm monogamous minded and then it hit me that oh wait he knew before and that's the reason that like oh made me realize oh yeah I am polyamorous this is why this doesn't work because that it hit me recently that it didn't work because literally the relationship structures and styles were just completely different with him to me and that's why we don't talk anymore it would just never work to be honest as much as we would want it to work so can I ask why your most recent relationship you're talking about a relationship that you had up until a week ago why it was monogamous focused if there's fluidity there where you can identify as polyamorous but also be in a monogamous relationship I think it was partly because of the pandemic to be honest I'm scared <laughs> like I'm scared about like giving people COVID or like getting COVID so part of it was that because again this subconscious thought of oh I need to be in a monogamous minded relationship because this is what society has taught me is right whatever is considered right or like just and wait what was the second half of the question I oh I'm curious if you think you can be polyamorous you know as a part of your identity but also be in a monogamous relationship I think so personally because I've been in those situations but I'm not sure it would be for me it wasn't fulfilling I wasn't able to fully express myself but for some people it may work so in your experience, what works for you around polyamory? Why is it that you desire a polyamorous relationship? Because I just can't just love one person or just like be with one person. And I remember the most liberated like summer that I had, which I just thought was, oh, this is just part of college, like sleeping around and everything and hookup culture. The most liberated I felt was three years ago this one summer. I'm multiple friends with benefits. And then I was also like still like, sleeping with other people that summer and I just remember feeling so liberated so being in relationship with multiple people at the same time and having very deep friendships is also like part of my own polyamory and what do you find people get wrong about polyamory that they equate it to polygamy which I'm like no 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 it is nothing like polygamy like this is communication there's consent there's a shitload of communication and boundaries. It's so different from polygamy. Two different things. Stop equating them with each other. How do you define that difference? I think the main difference is that polygamy is rooted in this like very religious, Christian tradition, whereas polyamory is just rooted in liberation, at least in my opinion and my experience, that polyamory is more about liberation rather than something that's rooted in such like religious values and there's supposed to be a certain way about doing it and whatnot and it's like also I feel like the big difference is that like in polygamy from what I've seen from the media and like interviews that I've seen on YouTube of ex-cult members that like it's about producing as many children as possible or whatever because of Christianity whereas like polyamory is not even about that. Interesting. So polyamory being rooted in liberation, um, you know, I think about sexual liberation and racial liberation going hand in hand. Uh, definitely when we think about poly, so many of us, polyamory, we think about it as being something for white people. So I've heard friends say, oh, no, that's some white people shit. So I'm curious how navigating polyamory as an Asian woman is different. Like, are there specific challenges you face? I think it's more so like on the family front of people just not understanding what it is and then equating it with something that's completely different sometimes 
I mean, I haven't, I haven't really dated in a polyamorous way in a long time. But I think with dating in general, I feel like as an Asian woman, there's always those stereotypes that are going to come up. And then on top of that, being a sexuality professional, people make a lot of assumptions about like, oh, can you teach me about sex? I'm like, no, I don't even like, that's not even my worth. My work is something completely different from that. How do you define your worth? Like I define my work by it's aiding and empowering survivors of sexual and intimate partner violence to reclaim their wholeness and sensuality. Whereas a lot of people just think being a sexuality professional is like you teach people about sex positions and you do sex tours. I mean, there's some of us that do that. I just personally don't do that because that's just not the work that makes me the most joyful. So what does that work look like in terms of, you know, supporting survivors? So a lot of it is around consent and boundaries beyond sex because that is like my one of my favorite workshops to give. I think a lot of like consent and boundaries talk are usually so rooted in sex. Like I just remember freshman year of college, we had like, I think it was like old white woman teach us about like boundaries and stuff. And I'm like, but why can't you get someone who's like closer my age and who can relate to like situations I've been in? So it's a lot about teaching around that. And then also I've had lived experience with the Title IX system, which is the reporting system in American colleges and also American education here in the States. So I do some work around that. I'm going to be doing a workshop with a Asian American organization later this month. So I'm excited about that. Is and that available I, online? It is not public, so it won't be available online. But if people want to book me for that at their institution, they can definitely do that because I would love that. And, and what I do you talk about in these workshops? So if it's not just about sexual consent, what are the nuances or the scenarios that you work through? Like emotional consent is something that I literally heard of two years ago from my therapist. And that's something that I talk about because a lot of people don't talk about that and don't talk about like how mental capacity goes into consent with just conversations. And then also think about consent and boundaries with like family, because that's something that we don't really think about. I mean, growing up as a Chinese American, I didn't grow up knowing any of this stuff until literally two years ago in therapy. And so what, how do you define that emotional consent? Or how do you describe it? You don't have to define it. So like an example would be like, say I wanted to talk to like a friend about something like heavy. So like gun violence or something as an example. So I would ask them, hey, do you have capacity to talk about gun violence? Like do you have time and energy? And they can say no or yes. And that's a example of emotional consent. I really appreciate that. You know, I think anyone who's in a helping field, anybody working in the sexuality field, anyone who's just... I guess the type of person where friends, family, strangers, <laughs> co-workers come to them. I don't think we were taught that we could say, I don't have space for this. I don't think we were taught that we could say like, we, we could be both empathetic and a kind person, but also say, you know what, this isn't something I can handle today. And it's interesting when we think about consent, because I can say that I would have no problem saying physically no. To somebody. I would have no problem and I have had no problem saying, get your fucking hand off my ass. <laughs> no problem with that. But with these emotional boundaries, I really struggle. And it's also very new to me. And I am certain that that is a reflection of both my gender and my cultural background that I, I don't feel, I don't feel entitled to say, you know what, I can't take this on right now. And sometimes at the end of the day, I find myself on empty because I say yes to everyone. I say yes to everything. 
I, I would never even consider asking them to ask me. <laughs> and we don't live in a culture where we do those check-ins. Like that language that you offered is so important. Do you have the capacity for this right now? Are you open to this conversation? Can we talk about this today? Or do you honestly just want to talk about the weather, right? Especially among friends. Sometimes you just want to decompress and you don't. And I, I think sometimes we describe it as drama, like people are bringing drama, but it's not necessarily drama. It's about the fact that we don't discuss emotional consent. So I'm really curious how you parse this out in a workshop. And I really obviously think people will be interested uh, to book you and learn more. How do you parse that out? So you give that example. Do they do role plays? Are you like playing games or doing activities? What does that look like? For me, in the workshop that I created, it's about giving people questions and making them think about it and like journal about it. Because like, this was something that I wish I had as like a 13, 14 year old or like 15 year old, people asking me these questions, but I've seen in like, I guess, typical like sex ed in schools, it's always about STIs, which I'm like, okay, that's valid. But also you're teaching us to be scared of STIs. I went to a private Quaker school, which I was very lucky to go to. And even then we didn't even talk about consent in any sex ed class. We did not talk about any of this stuff. And so just asking people these questions to have them think about it and then converse with anyone who's in the workshop. I think it offers a lot of space to for people to think and to like really like put on their noggin, so to speak, to just think about like, oh, maybe I haven't had this in my life before. And maybe this is something that can be beneficial. I think it can be life changing. When we think about emotional consent, you've given us that one example of asking for whether or not you have capacity. What if you're on the receiving end? So question for myself. <laughs> when people don't check in to see whether or not we have the capacity, uh, do you have any suggestion for language we can use to set those boundaries? For me, I've always used like, hey, I don't have the spoons because I, I have PTSD. So I go by spoon theory, which I forgot who created it but I don't have the capacity to talk about X, Y, Z. Cause like something that comes up for me <laughs> that I can't talk about a lot is politics. And when people talk to me about it too much, I'm just like, this is too much for my brain to handle. Like, hey, I enjoy this conversation, but right now I don't have the capacity. I don't have the time and energy to give towards this conversation so that we can have a really fruitful conversation. Uh, so Spoon Theory's Christine Miserandino, right? Can you give us a synopsis of it? So... From my understanding of it, it's like how many, like, for example, you might have like five spoons in a day. And then so doing laundry might take you like one and a half spoons. So then you have like, what, three and a half spoons left. And then, okay, if you want to like go out and socialize, that might take like two spoons. So then you have like one and a half spoons. It's really like about energy levels. But what I've learned from the disability justice, it's about it correlates to energy levels. And also just like, I don't know, for me, it helps to think of my energy visually as a visualized person. I mean, I went to film school. So <laughs> I like to think about everything in visuals. Yes, the opposite of me. I like it in numbers, but I think they work well together in terms of it's it's a metaphor for resources. And I need, I know that I, for example, would benefit from one of your workshops in terms of just practicing using that language and setting those boundaries. So this is all really helpful to leave folks with something to either reflect upon or journal upon. 
or journal about. Do you have something we can think about around our own emotional boundaries or emotional consent? Like, is there a question we can use or a prompt we can use today? I love to leave kind of listeners with something they can go try today to, you know, uh, feel better about themselves or ensure that we are setting boundaries and getting more of what we need and not draining ourselves emotionally. So I think the best question from this workshop or like a paraphrased version of it is how can you honor yourself knowing the societal expectations that you face and something that I talk about in the workshop is gendered and cultural expectations because that's something that, that I grew up with as a Chinese American woman that within Chinese American culture there's like this expectation that I'm supposed to like do the emotional labor for men in the community in particular and then also do emotional labor outside of that for like white people and it's specifically like white women that I've interacted with. And then there's that gendered, and again, that combines gendered and societal expectations around like what you're supposed to do versus what really does honor you as an individual. So I see that set up as things that I see two columns, like just the way I would visualize it, like what I can do to honor myself. And then what are the expectations around all, all these different identities that intersect and how I would look at like finding common ground. So that's how I find that useful. Babe, do you have anything to add? I know it's, it's definitely different as a straight white dude. Yeah. I mean, as a, <clears throat> excuse me, as a straight white guy, I mean, I think all the privileges are stacked up and given to us. So you don't often think about how, I mean, even that, that comment about, are you aware of what you're saying? Does that person that you're conversing with have the capacity to have that conversation right now? Like Sydney made reference to politics. It's something that I might just jump right into because it's something easy to talk about without realizing that that might be something that is one of your, you know, spoons of energy or something that you just don't even want to discuss because, you know, it's, it's just something that triggers. Uh, so I think that that's really, really helpful. And, you know, even going back to your comment, I guess I was, it's been making me think about how people who are in monogamous relationships, Sydney, your first relationship where you said that your partner said you're poly, or you seem to be poly, and I could be wrong in what I'm saying here, but you're poly, and then you realize, oh, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I am. I wonder how do people in monogamous relationships right now begin to have those conversations when poly might be something that they want to explore or discuss or, you know, even begin to Right, and when you talk about that differential between one partner who is monogamous-minded and the other who identifies as polyamorous, in your experience, Sydney, and I I will let you go, (laughs) is that something that is surmountable? Or like, what was your experience? Can you make things work when one person is monogamous-minded and the other, and not only monogamous for themselves, wants their partner to be monogamous, and the other partner identifies as polyamorous? I think that it's really hard in my experiences that I've had with monogamous-minded people because they have this like one view of like, at least with like my first love, there was this one view of like, okay, we're going to get engaged. Oh my God. I almost got engaged in 22. That's always a fun story to tell. (laughs) And like he wanted this very, what I would consider like traditional nuclear family type of thing, which is fine. Hey, that's him. But for me that I realized, or now looking back, I realized that I wasn't happy in that relationship. And I think that it's hard if you both aren't feeling happy and you're both in this like, okay, we're salvaging parts of ourselves. And I think that was the problem in that relationship that we were salvaging parts of ourselves to be together and we weren't all our whole selves, which is really, I don't think that's liberating for anyone. And it wasn't liberating for me. It didn't make me happy. And I think that's also why 
because his idea of monogamy was very different from what I thought the relationship could be, which was like more monogamous-ish, which is, I think, part of polyamory. And I think that it's connected to polyamory. And it was like that for a little bit. But when we got more serious, it felt like, okay, that whole monogamous-ish aspect of the relationship went away that it's more like okay we're gonna move in together because you're going to grad school and I'll be doing working in a nine to five which is again I feel like also connects to nuclear family and then also like working in a like shared finances which can obviously be different in polyamorous relationships but like this was more in like a I don't know how to explain how it was monogamous minded but there was just this like underlying subconscious thing that like oh the way that we're going to share finances is monogamous minded and also I'm going to give you a ring because I want to be engaged to you and I want to marry you wow bringing up money that must be uh, that's a conversation we've never had on the podcast and I how yeah how you manage that. finances which again speaks to the reality that many of these options are more accessible with every layer of privilege right if you if money isn't as tense if money isn't as much of a concern it, it may not it may potentially lead to less tension so that's that's a whole other conversation um it brings me back just to, to close out to your question about how do I honor myself? And when you talk about your experience, feeling not liberated, feeling limited, feeling as though you're like, you know, maybe bargaining away pieces of yourself or salvaging just pieces of yourself. That's a big question, not only around setting boundaries and emotional consent, but also a really important question around relationships, right? How am I honoring myself in this relationship? And of course, honoring your partner, not in the old not in the Old Testament kind of way, but, you know, showing love and respect and really talking things through. So thank you so much. Thank you for sharing all of these concepts. I'm going to be definitely thinking about how I honor myself. For me, I'll just tell folks, my challenge is professionally setting boundaries more so than with like a partner or friends. Um, sometimes I struggle with friends, but more it's it's professionally. How do I say, listen, I, I can't take this on, you know, and I, I don't want to discourage people from contacting me. It's just, I get a lot of, you know, DMs and emails and I want to help people, right? But then I have difficulty setting those boundaries. So I'm going to start thinking about what that looks like and where those expectations come from. So thank you so much. And I, I imagine that you're, I'm certain confident that your workshops on emotional consent are really invaluable to institutions and to individuals. So folks can learn more at sydneyraychin.com, but we will also link your Instagram and your email in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And now I'm thinking about like, oh, all these questions. Now I'm like, ooh, something with money. <laughs> That's something that I have to think on more because I didn't even realize that I made that comment. And I'm like, wait, we don't really talk about that. Yeah, I'm curious who's talking about money in the polyamorous community. So if, if folks have a resource they can recommend, I'd love to have somebody come in and, and talk about that either from a personal or expert perspective. So thank you again. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening, tuning in. Don't forget to check out adamandeve.com. Use code Dr. Jess for 50% off almost any item plus free shipping and a whole bunch of goodies. We love hearing from you, so keep the questions coming. Next week, we're going to answer some questions, I promise. Wherever you're at, have a great one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. <laughs>